0: Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, we need your continued help, your continued support for putting people back to work.
1: money. I'm Adam Davidson.
0: And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today's Tuesday, June 21st. Happy summer solstice. That was Antonio Villarigosa, the mayor of L.A. that you heard at the top.
1: And today's podcast, we're going to bring you, it might not seem like it at first, but we're actually going to bring you some good news about the economy, some reasons to have some bit of hope in the bad news. But first, the man who always brings us the bad news, the Planet Money Indicator deliverer himself, Jacob Goldstein, what do you got today?
0: Adam, I I do have a bad news indicator today, I'm happy to say. It's 31%. Distressed sales accounted for 31 percent of all existing home sales in May. That's according to numbers out today. And what does that mean? So distressed sales are homes that are either in foreclosure or the borrower is selling at a loss, selling for less than they owe on the house. And this is
1: really bad news because... Distressed homes sell for a lot less than homes that are not distressed. If I want to sell my house and I think it's worth 300 grand, but you, Jacob, being a deadbeat who hasn't paid his mortgage and are nearly in foreclosure and your house is going for 200 grand and it's very similar to mine, I'm not going to be able to sell mine for 300. So I'm not going to feel wealthy. I'm not going to buy stuff. So that 31 percent of distressed homes is like a weight on all the housing in America, which in turn is a weight on the entire U.S. economy.
0: Exactly. And, you know, not only is this number very high, this 31 percent number, it's exactly the same rate as we saw a year ago, exactly the same as it was in May of 2010. So this is this very clear, very blunt, ugly reminder that the housing market is not getting better. This housing bust is just grinding on month after month and now year after year. And there are still millions more foreclosures to come.
1: Thank you, Jacob. At least this time it was just bad news. You didn't Boom, like, trick us. Straight. I'm not
0: playing games with
1: you. Nah. No. Yeah, I appreciate that. Sure. But we have someone who has a little bit of counterthinking to yours. We're going to devote today's podcast to Mark Zandi. Mark is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics and he's one of the top handful of economists that people all around the country and the government turn to to find out how is the economy going to be doing a few months down the road, a few years down the road. He has this very complex computer model and also sort of a mental model. He has some ways of thinking about the economy that have made him one of the most successful economic forecasters in the country. We should note, Jacob, that when we say successful economic forecasters, we don't mean he's right a lot. We just mean <laughs> he, he's wrong a lot, but he's less wrong than a lot of other people. and Less wrong, less often, maybe. Less wrong, less often. And, you know, he often gets the general direction of the economy right, even if he misses the key dates. You know, he'll predict things happening in three months. It might not happen in three months, but they might happen.
0: So, Adam, you and I talked to Zandi late last year. It was early November, and he said at that time he thought... Nine to 12 months from then, the economy was going to feel a lot better. So basically, he was saying late 2011, the economy is going to feel pretty good. Now, obviously, the first half of this year was it was kind of brutal, right? The economy grew much more slowly than people were predicting. There was the big earthquake in Japan. Oil prices went way up. So so the mood now generally is very different. And Adam, you and I figured we'll get Sandy on the phone. We'll play for him this old prediction. He'll say, wow, I totally blew it but in fact, that's not at all what happened. Yeah, he was much more optimistic than we expected.
1: Our attempted gotcha moment was not so gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) He started by giving us just a simple frame for understanding how an economy works and how to figure out if it's healthy. You can think of the economy as having four big buckets, four big areas of concern. There's households, basically the people, consumers, whatever you want to call them. There's firms, you know, obviously, all the companies. There's banks, which are a very special kind of company and obviously uh, are particularly relevant in the last few years. And then there's the government, which means, you know, federal, state, county, municipal, whatever, government. And he said, if you start with households, households as a group are in pretty good shape.
2: We lost 8.5 million jobs, peaked a trough in the recession. That was cataclysmic. I mean, there's 130 million people, eight and a half million of them lost their jobs in a two-year period. I mean, that's just, that's just unbelievable. We got to work through that. And that's you know, the reason why, one of the key reasons why the economy isn't really taken off here. But the households are doing a very good job getting their proverbial house in order. And increasingly, even for households, it's no longer a question of, can I spend more? It's really a question of, Am I willing to do that? Do I feel confident enough to go out and spend more? Households have done a marvelous job of reducing debt. I mean, if you look at the data, the number of credit cards outstanding, bank cards, retail store cards, peaked at almost $600 back in August of 2008. As of the end of May, we're down to less than $500 Right, but
0: credit uh, card debt is like a trillion dollars. Mortgage debt is like $10 trillion.
2: Yeah, and mortgage debt has come down quite dramatically. And most importantly of all, the proportion of income that households are devoting to paying on their debt, it's not at a record low, but it will be at current rates of deleveraging and at current interest rates, which are likely going nowhere fast, by early 2012 uh, will be at a new record low. So what matters for most people is what share of of my income is going to servicing debt, and that is now approaching a record low. One other thing I'd point out is, you know, it is important to make a distinction among households. There really are two distinct groups. Lower middle income groups are still having a great deal of difficulty with their debt. They're struggling to manage through that. Upper income households in the top half of the income distribution, their balance sheet arguably has never been better. They're in very, very good shape. So the demarcation point would be the median household income. You know, half of people make less, half the people make more. It's about fifty thousand dollars a year in income. If you make above that, in general, and of course I'm just generalizing here, and that's not true for everybody, their balance sheets are in very, very good shape. If you make less than that, folks in those, in that bottom half of the income distribution, their balance sheets are very encumbered. My, my point is that you know households in aggregate have made a lot of progress in reducing debt. Uh, more work to be done, to be sure, but we, we've gone a long way to doing it. Let me give you another statistic. If you look at all debt, everything that households own, except for their first mortgage, and that's credit cards, uh, that's uh, auto loans, consumer finance, student loans, you know everything but your first mortgage, home equity lines of credit, the whole shoot and match. Mob loans. The, de, <laughs> well, that's not in the data because oh, okay. they don't go to the credit <laughs> files. Right. But th- that, the delinquency rate on that debt? to 90-day delinquent is lower today than it was at the start of the recession. And it's falling rapidly, rapidly. When
0: we talked with you last fall, you cited housing and, in particular, all the foreclosures and all the short sales, distressed sales, as – the key problem for the economy. And and that was one of the things you said would likely be significantly better by the end of this year, by the end of 2011. Do you still think that housing will be better by the end of this year?
2: Yeah, I think we're making progress. It's uh, a bit slower than I had hoped for, in, in part because of some of the foreclosure process issues that have uh, cropped up since uh, last November. So it's slowed down the process of working through these distressed properties. But we are working through them, and conditions are improving. The number of people that are late one month on their mortgage today is back to where it was prior to the beginning of the recession. 60-day delinquent, that's two months uh, late, almost back to where we were. I want to just make sure
1: I understand that number. So what I get out of that is The people who are in trouble have been in trouble a while, but we're not getting a whole lot of new people in trouble.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So we have 3.6 million mortgage loans that are in foreclosure or pretty close. They're 120-day delinquent. But they've been there for a long time, and they're not moving through quickly because of these foreclosure process issues. But the new people getting into trouble is falling very rapidly and actually pretty close to where we are in a normal, well-functioning housing market and economy. So that's very encouraging.
0: I mean, I I understand why that would be encouraging for the sort of long term or even the medium term. But when you say there are 3.6 million people who are either in foreclosure or almost in foreclosure, that sounds like this huge overhang of basically foreclosed houses. that are about to go up for sale and keep essentially driving home prices down or keep a keep a lid on home prices because, you know, obviously foreclosed homes are cheaper. Why should I go buy some new home if I can get a deal on a foreclosure?
2: Yeah, good point. And prices are falling and uh, will likely continue to fall for the next six, nine months or so. The key statistic, though, for house prices is the share of home sales that are distressed, foreclosure and short. That's uh, very high and likely to rise higher in the next six to nine months, and thus the price declines. But once that share peaks and starts to come back down again, and I expect that to occur next year, uh, prices will stabilize and even could Begin to rise again, so the number of foreclosed properties that are going to be in the market will remain elevated for a number of years—three, four years—but their impact on house prices will begin to abate by next spring. All right. So,
1: so okay. So, so the household picture is—I don't know if we can come out and say rosy, but it's rosying. It's it's becoming more rosy, yeah. and it's and brightening very rapidly. It's brightening yes. very rapidly. All right. So that okay. That that's very encouraging. All right. So let's go to
2: firms, companies. If you look at the fundamentals for businesses, particularly the big companies and the mid-sized companies that generate a lot of the jobs, they are doing very, very well. I don't understand that. If, 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 if companies'
1: job is to st- sell stuff to households and households are only just now becoming healthy, how in the world are companies doing great?
2: If there's any good that comes out of losing 8.5 million jobs is that That represents a dramatic increase in productivity, and that goes right to a business's bottom line. Their profit margins are extraordinarily wide. They're record-wide. And if you mix in just a little bit of sales growth, you don't need a whole lot, with those wide margins, you generate tremendous corporate profits growth. In fact, corporate profits grew economy-wide across all firms, publicly traded, privately held, 25 to 30% last year. Even in Q1, the first quarter, year over year, it grew 8.5%. And that's you know against pretty tough, tough comparisons.
1: Can I try to translate that into English? What I hear you saying is companies fired a whole lot of people. The people who still kept their jobs were so nervous and so under pressure that they had to work extra, extra hard. And so the companies didn't have to pay the people they laid off. They made just a little bit more money in sales, but they made a lot more profit because all the people laid off didn't have to get paid. And so the owners of those companies, which granted might be us, I mean, it might be people with 401ks or whatever, people who own stocks, did very well. But it sounds like the workers you know, just had to work really, really hard without a, a huge amount of remuneration. Is that a too cynical a way to look at it, or is that fair?
2: You know, it, it's entirely fair. You know, it, it's... Uh, the way every business cycle works in our economy, that's exactly what happens. You, you have a recession uh, for whatever reason. Uh, businesses respond to that by dramatically cutting costs. They work really hard to get their cost structures down so that they can survive. And that means cutting jobs, cutting employment. That's, and that's why you have a recession. And we, again, had a very severe recession. Once those margins are restored, once they get their costs down – they stop cutting. Of course, stock markets, investors begin to realize, oh, these companies have reduced their cost structure and they're now uh, have uh, the potential to generate a lot of corporate earnings, a lot of corporate profits. They drive up stock prices. So that's why stock prices always rise before the economy does coming out of recession. And the combination of better corporate profits and better stock prices is what gets business people to step up and say, "Okay, now I've got to look for opportunity, begin to hire people. And that's the economy turns around and it becomes all very self-reinforcing. And it's that process that we're in the middle of. And it's been very difficult, more difficult than in past recessions to get going because of the severity of what we've been through and because of all of the Policy changes that we've imposed on on the economy during this period, and I'm not saying they're bad policies. I'm not saying we shouldn't have done any of these things. You know, it's understandable given what we what we went through that we would go down some of these paths. Do you mean banking regulation? Is that the main thing? Yeah, that's a good example of it. I mean, how can you go through a severe financial crisis and not have financial regulation? I mean, it makes no sense. You're going to have it, but the process of going through it is not painless. I mean, that's 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 going to be an adjustment for the financial system and for everyone they lend to.
1: So, I just want to keep repeating everything so I make sure I understand it so you have yeah. you have households, you have regular folks who have more and more money available to them they It seems like they could be spending more than they are and still stay within their means but they're they're not quite convinced yet that that's a good idea because they're afraid of losing their job or mm-hmm. um, but but there's real potential there you have mm-hmm. Companies – and obviously we're talking about the aggregate macro picture. There's lots and lots of differences from household to household or from company to company. But in, in aggregate, the, the the companies are doing very, very well. They, they have a mm-hmm. lot of money in the bank. They really mm-hmm. could hire a lot of people. They really could start doing stuff. But they're waiting to see if the households really are going to start spending. And so they're sort of in this wait-and-see mode. Um, so as soon as the households start spending, they're, they're ready to to go into action. I sort of picture this weight on this whole thing, sort of the the wet blanket or whatever, is housing, that that at least a good chunk of those households owe so much on their homes and are so trapped by that debt that that's really preventing them from from going out and spending. So if we were – once those homes, those foreclosed homes, clear through the system, once they're sold away – then then it's really reasonable to expect that household sector to really start spending again which would excite the companies who would start investing again hiring people again and and that would create a virtuous cycle and then the other group is the banks so the banks you know we've been hearing a lot of like why aren't the banks lending money cuz that would help all of this right that would if the banks were lending money to these businesses then they it would be even easier for them to invest and start new New lines or new divisions or new factories or whatever, but that that one I have a hard time with because because isn't credit fairly cheap to the banks? So why why aren't they lending out more?
2: Oh, they are. Uh, and the banking system is much improved now. Again, you need to make a distinction between the big banks, the midsize banks, and the smaller banks. Small banks are still having a great deal of difficulty, but they're only a small piece of the of the the credit pie. The big banks, they're actually in very good shape. They're very well capitalized. I have a lot of capital. And they're now very profitable. I mean, because of that improvement in credit quality, uh, that means that they have to provide less uh, for future loan losses. And so their, their corporate earnings are very strong. It's, and again, it's, for them, it's no longer a question of can I lend, it's a question of am I willing to lend? And increasingly, they are. The credit numbers are improving. So take a look at uh, bank loans to businesses. These are commercial, so-called commercial industrial loans they are now rising. Uh, They've been rising for a year, and they're now rising almost at a double-digit pace. Now, they're still quite low by historical standards, given what happened in the recession, but they are picking up very rapidly. Even lending on credit cards, on auto loans, on consumer finance loans, on home equity lines of credit, they're all now positive. Uh, New loans are now picking up. you know, the credit spigot isn't nearly as open as it was, and it's going to take time. Well, frankly, we hope it's never as open as it was, right? <laughs> frankly, you're right. I mean, yeah. it never will be, right? It right. won't be because of financial regulation and because of higher capital requirements and liquidity requirements. We're not going back, at least not in my lifetime, to those days. But uh, the credit spigot is now uh, – it, it was it was closed completely shut two years ago. It is now open, and it is is opening. And so that's another sign, uh, another reason for uh, optimism.
1: And i got to say, it gives us such comfort to know that the large banks are doing well. We were so worried about those guys. (laughs) And, you know, if if – yeah, I know that they're free market I'm capitalists and they reluctantly accepted massive government largesse to keep from complete collapse. And it's so wonderful to know that while the rest of us are waiting for the economy to take off, yeah. they're able to count massive profits and bonuses. That's
2: Well, I, I'm with you on that. But, you know, the thing is our fortunes are intimately linked. If we're going to do well, they've got to do well. Although um, apparently yeah.
1: we can do badly and they can still do well. <laughs> but but well, if we want to do well, they do have to. Do, so they need yeah. to do well either way.
2: Yeah, they need they, – they, you know, they've got to be London money uh, and I think uh, they're, they're, they're slowly getting around to it.
1: So the last big bucket, the bucket, bucket four, for, right, Yeah, yeah. government. It, yeah. And is that just a disaster? I mean is that just massive, massive debt, not, not much well, this good is, there?
2: This, in my mind, goes to why people are so nervous fundamentally, particularly business people. I mean we have a $1.35 trillion budget deficit, 9 percent of GDP even under the best of circumstances, the deficit will come in a bit, uh, but nowhere near what we need for this to be sustainable, for uh, for this all to work out, for interest rates to remain low enough and for the economy to continue to move forward. And they see what's happening in Washington, and they they just don't understand how this is going to work. And key to my optimism over the next 6 to 12 months is that we're going to raise the debt ceiling limit in a reasonably graceful way and get something good out of the process.
1: Wow. How did we? We took a really depressing turn somewhere, which missed me. Like, I was feeling so good. We were talking about the households and the firms because and it, the banks, it, be, and everything was great, or at least it, potential there, to be great.
2: <laughs> there is reason to be optimistic here because, uh, you know, f- we have agreement. I mean, the president in his budget said, listen, we need $4 trillion in deficit reduction over the next 10 years. Go look at Congressman Ryan from Wisconsin's proposal, the Republican proposal. It's $4 trillion in deficit reduction in the next but 10 years. But wasn't that
1: fairly laughable, that proposal?
2: Not the $4 trillion. No one laughed at that. And look at the fiscal commission that reported out at the end of last year, $4 trillion in deficit reduction over the next 10 years. And in fact, that's the right number. If you do the arithmetic under reasonable economic assumptions, that's what we need to do to get to fiscal sustainability. So what we need to do is put pen to paper and agree to it. That's all we need to do. Wait, that's all we need to know. Have
1: you been paying attention to Congress? And yeah. <laughs> that's, all, that's
2: all we need to do, agree to these things, pass the debt ceiling, and then, then we have the election. The election is a referendum on how do you precisely get $4 trillion in deficit reduction over the next 10 years. Do you tax rich and,
1: people or do you take
2: spending away from social
1: programs or whatever? Do you actually seriously address the uh, you know, Medicare and Social Security and all those issues?
2: Right. So that, that's the election. Whoever wins the election decides, and everyone comes back to work in early 2013. The next president, whomever that is, lays down a path and actually fills in the blanks and determines exactly how we address our long-term fiscal problems. Now, if we do that, we're going to be okay. The most immediate key to all of this is what happens over the next four to eight weeks as we debate the debt ceiling and whether we are going to be able to come to this in a reasonably graceful way. I think we
1: ended at the most depressing possible solution, which is it actually economically it's solvable. We just need Congress to implement the
2: solution. But you know what? You know, I'm an economist and I uh, base my expectations about the future on what's happened historically. I've gone back and looked at uh, a lot of our history. And the one thing that comes out of all of it is, first, we are always beating each other over the head. It was even worse back in Alexander Hamilton's days. That's just part of the American experience. But the second thing is, we always come to an agreement. When push comes to shove, we figure it out. And I see no reason why that should not be the case this go-around. So I... At the end of the day, when I think about this, I come to a positive place, not a negative place, because I think we are gonna find the political will to do what's necessary. How about I that think for that, a happy ending? That's <laughs> a great great place to end. The I, end. I, the end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: may it be true. From your may lips. It be from true. your yeah. lips. From your lips. Exactly. Tell me but my wisdom we want to hear your thoughts about today's show. Jacob and I have the view that you can just call Mark Zandy up any day of the week and just ask him to talk for half an hour, and that would make a really good podcast. We'd like to know if you agree. Please email us at PlanetMoney at npr.org.
0: You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter and, of course, on the blog at npr.org slash money. I'm Jacob Goldstein.
1: And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening.